tinkers with my spirit and he tunes me as I go and no matter how you spin it it's my life is his show he may give you all riches And he may take what you love. And he may ask more than your dreams can afford. And he may take on the hurt when he lays on the burden. You know, in the main, it's for the love of the game. And it's all in the name. taken and rejoice in what can be our faith is of the shaken to challenge what we see and he answers this challenge just when we feel torn And he shows us in no uncertain words all that we've left undone, what we missed on the run. You know, in the main, it's for the love of the game, and it's all in the name of the Lord. Yes, it's all in the name, and I would love to explain, but I can't. It's an interior matter. All the fortune and fame that we caught to our shame, it's a trouble at best. We'll never confess. And it leads us astray. Tinkers with our spirit, and he tunes us as we go, and he knows there's nothing in it. It's our life, it's his show. It's our life, it's his show. Sahana Bhavatu, Sahano Bunaku, Sahaviryam Karavavahai, Tejas Vinavaditamas Kumavishavahai, Om Shanti Shanti Shanti. May Brahman protect us. 
May he guide us and give us strength and right understanding. May love and harmony be with us all. Peace, peace, peace. And good morning. Our topic today is creation. Now, I hope you didn't come to hear an exposition or a talk about the difference between evolution and creationism because I'm not really going to talk about that much. I'll just touch on it briefly. But basically, this is going to be a talk that deals with comparisons of creation myths and why we might want to look at creation myths. What is the, the benefit of that? So I'm going to start with a couple of them that might not be so familiar and then talk about some general ideas that about why we study creation, then look at the Vedantic perspective and how it fits in with all of these other mythologies, and then how that ties in with our spiritual practice. So first, the Egyptian creation myth. The ever-existing Lord of the uttermost limit of time and space, so that's something you want to note, uttermost limit of time and space, the everlasting God fills all space as an invisible power. It seems that a desire, another point to remember, arose in him to create the world. To do this, the everlasting God took upon himself the form of the god Atum, the, or Kapera, depending on which manuscript you're reading, the creator par excellence. He did so by uttering his own name, another key element. He found himself in a vast ocean in which the seed forms of all things existed, but in a state of helplessness and inertness. Capera raised himself up and passed from passiveness to activity, but he found himself in empty space. He thought out in his heart what he wanted to create. Wisdom, truth, law, and order embodied themselves in the goddess Mahat to assist him in this task. Then Capera, in union with his shadow, begets air and dryness and liquids. This pair begets the earth god and the sky goddess, which is opposite from a lot of mythologies. Ra, the sun, as an aspect of Capera, keeps the earth and sky apart during the day. Ra makes men and women out of the essence that is in his eye. Now, that's, that's a very mystical mythology about creation, and it has a lot of the key elements that we're going to see in many of these other mythologies. The next one is a little bit more obscure, and there's a lot more probably of, of history and geography mixed in it, and you find that a lot as well, that when the seers uh, in these different traditions are trying to explain things to their people. They put them in terms that they can understand, and those usually have to do with historical events and with the geological things that they see around them. So this one is from Babylonia, and this one is a, <laughs> a little hard to follow. Uh, it's sort of like trying to follow Wagner's ring cycle. If you can keep all the characters straight after 16 hours, you've done quite well. In the beginning, there was Apsu, the primeval sweet water, and Tiamat, chaos or salt water. There were no other beings. The waters were not separated. They and the earth mingled, and there was no ground for the growth of anything. Then nothing bore name. No destinies had been ordained. 
by the interaction of these two forces comes a succession of gods culminating in the great gods of Anu and Ea who beget a son called Marduk. Conflict arose between the younger gods and the uh, primeval deities. See, we had the succession of gods and you had the primeval deities of Apsu and Tiamat. So now these young upstarts are going to have problems with the, uh, uh, the old establishment, okay? <laughs> Conflict arose and uh, the younger gods wanted to separate the waters from each other, to separate the earth from the waters. And uh, these activities angered Tiamat. So Ea kills Apsu. Tiamat is determined on revenge, and she assembles a horde of ferocious monsters led by her son, Kingu. Are we lost yet? <laughs> <laughs> Various gods try to conquer Tiamat and her monsters. All are failing. Finally, Marduk agrees to defeat her if all the other gods agree to make him king of the gods. Nothing like motivation to get you going. So they all readily agree since they haven't been able to do anything. And so Tiamat is killed by Marduk and he divides her body in two, one half forming the sky and the other half the earth. Kingu is then slain and by mixing Kingu's blood with the earth, human beings are created to inhabit the newly formed earth and to serve the gods. All right, so two rather different mythologies, but there's some common elements that we'll pull together. But first of all, let's ask ourselves, why should we talk about creation? You know, the, the Buddhist idea is that if uh, uh, someone shoots you with an arrow, you know, you really don't need to know what kind of wood it was made out of and what kind of stone it was made out of and who shot it and how old they were. <laughs> all you need to do is get the arrow out. And so figuring out how we got here is maybe perhaps not the most necessary thing in the world. However, I think we'll see that it actually does relate to our spiritual practices. And it reminds me of an old joke. There was this uh, uh, gentleman who was a sort of a, uh, a pesty customer at a department store. He was one of these people that uh, had a million questions every time he came in and needed the assistance of the clerks and wanted them to show them all sorts of things, you know, and well, don't you have another one of these in stock? And, uh, and then, they, then the person would come and return the item because they didn't like it, and then they'd buy something else. And so it got to the point where every, every, all the clerks tried to be busy doing something else when this customer came in so that they wouldn't have to wait on him. But he finally uh, uh, caught one of the, the clerks, and uh, after a frustrating morning trying to figure out what he was going to buy, and so he finally capture, captures this one clerk and says, could you help me out? And he says, certainly, which way did you come in? <laughs> so you see, that's part of our problem here. If we knew how we got into the mess we're in, perhaps we could find our way out. Certainly, we we do that in life. If we've gotten ourselves into a mess, we have to think, well, what did I do to get in this mess? And so uh, that helps us find our way out. Another reason is that we're part of this creation and it helps us to understand our nature if we can figure out how this all evolved into being. It's basically a part of our self-knowing or our self-knowledge and self-inquiry. Now, there are basically three sources of information that we might use to put a sort of holistic view together. Philosophy, which attempts to establish by certain logical principles uh, and conclusions drawn from them, 
uh, the basic ideas about what might have happened to get us here. And philosophy often draws on different religious traditions and sometimes not. Sometimes it might not necessarily be related to a particular spiritual tradition. Then there's science, and of course science is based on the observation and collection of data and then forming various hypotheses as to what patterns we're seeing here and what laws seem to be operating in the universe, and then trying to test those uh, hypotheses by seeing where those hypotheses lead you, uh, drawing some conclusions from them, and then you test to see if those conclusions are actually true. And then, of course, there's mythology, which is the uh, great body of literature that we find throughout the ages, and they're usually linked with a particular religious tradition. And these uh, mythologies try to explain this deeper nature of the universe through symbolism, through stories that somehow relate mysteries that we really can't completely understand in words, something that transcends our normal realm of thought. And so it complements, in a way, our scientific and philosophical ideas. And so I think it's good to put all these together because just one approach is not necessarily going to be adequate to give us a complete sense of the idea of creation or the mystery of creation. I don't think the mystery of creation is going to be solved just by logic or by dogma or by scientific inquiry. Science can certainly help us understand these things at a certain level, but re religions and mythologies help us to transcend uh, the limitations of language and reason and come to a, a knowing which perhaps we can't even put into words. And I think that's what happens with these mythologies. You get mystics in these different traditions, seers, uh, the shamans and so forth, who have some sort of vision or dream or experience and then they try to relate those uh, truths that they've experienced into words that people can understand. And, of course, it's not, not always an easy thing to do. If it's a true mystical experience, it's really not expressible in words. But what we can do here is look for some similar patterns, look for things in all these different mythologies, see if we see some correlations with some of our scientific theories and with our philosophies. So let's, uh, first of all, look at what perhaps many of you uh, in this audience would be familiar with, and that's some of the ideas that we find in Vedanta philosophies. First, uh, look at Shankara's Advaita philosophy. It starts out with the idea that there is this Brahman, which is one without a second, that's beyond space, time, and causation. And so, in a sense, it's beyond time. It's inexpressible and incomprehensible in ordinary terms, and it's knowable, though, through a transcendent state of consciousness. It can be described as the infinite, undivided, unchanging reality, or as Satchitananda, existence, knowledge, and bliss, or as peace, love, and freedom. The world is seen as a misperception of Brahman. And this misperception of Brahman is manifesting this way through a power that is called Maya. And so Maya is Brahman's power to manifest from within itself and yet remain unchanged. And you'll find that that's actually 
uh, comes up in a lot of these ancient mythologies from other cultures. And so we, in Advaita Vedanta, we say it's an apparent creation with name and form. And uh, it's a, let me see, how do I put this? Uh, this oneness becomes diversified into pairs of opposites and then into multiplicity. And it's important to remember that the gods and goddesses that we often uh, encounter in Hinduism are part of this realm of Maya. They're uh, something that comes out of Brahman. So all of these ideas come from Brahman. Now this is very similar to the uh, tantric Advaita system, except in that system, the manifestation is thought of in more of an actual, although temporary term. So it's not just uh, a, an unreality that's uh, being, it's our misperception, but it's an actual but temporary reality. Now in Ka uh, Kashmir Shaivism, you get more of a flavor of what I like to call a vibrational model. And that is where we look at the universe as coming out of vibrations in this infinite ocean of stillness and oneness. So you start out again with sort of this infinite unfathomable oneness, which is often described as an ocean. And then there comes a point of disturbance called a bindu, and this is often related to sound. It's, in other words, a sound is an analogy that we can understand, and we can see the effects of sound vibrations if we uh, vocalize uh, in front of a, a still plate of water. We can actually see the vibrations coming forth on the surface of the water. And so that's a an image that we can understand. And so this vibration comes from this bindu, it's related to sound. And so then the ideas of opposing forces comes where you have things that rise up and things that go back down in these uh, oscillations. And so these vibrations resonate then through several levels of creation from uh, the causal level to the subtle level to the gross level. And so you get this sort of resonance like you would octaves in music. You get these different levels of creation. Then also in uh, Hinduism, we have the concept of a cosmic mind and that the cosmic mind is the basis of the universe. Mahat, the cosmic mind, the universal mind becomes changed into vibrational thought and that then becomes changed into various things in the universe. And the things like uh, the various sense organs in, the, in your body and the, the rest of the universe. So all of these different elements then combine to form the whole universe. But it's always emphasized that behind this cosmic mind, Mahat, is the avyakta or the unmanifestedness that always has to be there as the ground of existence. Uh, sometimes this is used to describe or used in connection with the description of Brahma, Brahma, the creator god, or Ishwara, dreaming or thinking or desiring to create the, the universe at the cos subtle cosmic levels and then eventually at the gross levels, which we actually saw in that Egyptian myth, very similar ideas. Uh, this also brings rise to the idea that God then is imminent in the universe. Uh, God has evolved somehow, either apparently or temporarily actually, uh, has evolved through these several levels of existence from the causal to the subtle to the gross, 
And so the microcosm reflects the macrocosm. So there's somehow uh, the seed form of God in everything, and the seeds of everything are in God. God has involved into the universe, and the universe has evolved out of God and will involve back into seed form at the end of cosmic cycles. This also is then a critical feature that we see, that there's this shift of involution and evolution. Things come into manifestation, and then they go back into seed form, and then they come back into manifestation. And uh, this is uh, often related to the day and night of Brahma. And Brahma has thought up this universe, and then it all goes back into seed form. All right, now in the light of these philosophical outlooks, what would we expect to, to be the goal of our spiritual practice? Well, if we look at it as oneness uh, is the substratum of the whole universe before creation, that's if you can talk about it before, when it's beyond time, uh, then you might say, well, the goal of spiritual practice is to get back to that oneness. Frequently in these uh, mythologies, it'll mention love as sort of a glue that holds the universe together in a oneness, even amidst the multiplicity and diversity. And so we see that in our bhakti paths, where love is part of the spiritual path to reconnect back to that oneness. If you want to emphasize the concept that this universe uh, has come from something that is beyond space, time, and causation, then you would want to go beyond uh, this normal realm of space, time, and causation in your spiritual practice. And so you would be looking for that pure freedom that comes from getting beyond the law of causation, which comes from experiencing a timelessness. If you want to emphasize the idea that there is this universal consciousness which has thought up this universe, then you want to get back to that pure consciousness and eliminate all those vibrational things that are going on on this lake, uh, the sea of vibrations. And so you would emphasize that idea in your spiritual practice, in a meditation practice, for example. That's pretty much what we do. We try to still all of the distracting waves on this lake of consciousness called our mind and get back to that pure consciousness, that stillness, that is uh, the original uh, consciousness, consciousness itself rather than consciousness of something. Uh, or if you look at the world as a dreamlike reality and somewhat unreal, then you want to wake up to that fact and you want to emphasize the temporary unreality of the world and the permanent reality of your true nature. So you can see all of these different spiritual practices uh, evolve from our particular viewpoint of creation and the particular point that we want to emphasize. All right now, do we find support for these philosophical views in, in the sciences and in the mythologies of the, the world that we will look at? And I think we do. First of all, in the universe, we see uh, that everything is pretty much made out of hydrogen, which is made out of electricity. And electricity is a primal duality of positive and negative. And so from that sense, we can see a rather simple model of duality, electricity, positive and negative, creating multiplicity. You end up with 92 chemical elements, which you can then force up into uh, even more elements. And it's all basically made out of the same stuff, uh, protons and electrons. 
uh, which is your basic hydrogen atom. And what we see in the universe is a lot of hydrogen out there falling together by gravity, forming stars, and then the stars make all these other elements. So you start with oneness falling together uh, and then creating multiplicity. Uh, we see an expanding universe out there in, uh, for studying astronomy. We see that the universe is expanding away from us and we are at the center. We are at the observational center of our expanding universe. And we see everything away from us in space and backward in time. And so we see that this universe is indeed made up of a, in a very strange way of space, time, and causation. And there's an uncertainty principle that tells us that uh, the more certain we are of certain things in our physics, the less certain we are of other facets of our physics. And so there's this uh, sort of fuzziness <laughs> to our knowledge, and that's certainly uh, consistent with the idea that there's something a little unreal going on here. It's not quite as real as we think it is. All right, so uh, let's look at the biological sciences. Do we also see some evidence of these ideas in the biological sciences? I think we do. We see a certain unity in the biological sciences in that the DNA and RNA molecules uh, run through all of the different living forms. And just from four simple bases, you can build up all these different DNA molecules and end up with uh, algae and palm trees and uh, rabbits and people and <laughs> all sorts of diversity. So from a very simple uh, compounds, you, you form very complex compounds. And yet there seems to be uh, a certain unity of consciousness that is evident at certain times. For example, uh, when you have a, s a flock of birds or a school of fish or a colony of ants or bees, they seem to have a unity of action that is very difficult for us to understand. And we have to do that a little more consciously. We have to work at it to do that. But you certainly see it in things like drill teams and bands and uh, choreography on stage and so forth. You see that, and, and really, if, if you've talked to people or done that yourself, you realize that that's really a very good exercise in tuning in to the consciousness of others. You have to be aware of everything in a choir. We just had choir practice. You have to be aware of the sounds of all the other parts, and yet also be s solid in your own part, similar in a band or a drill team. You have to be completely uh, at one with your whole group in order to function. And of course, there, as uh, Schrodinger said, there is no hard evidence for a plurality of observers in the physical universe. In other words, uh, in our physics, the observer comes in quite frequently. In quantum physics and in relativity, uh, the observer affects things. And the interesting thing about that is that there doesn't seem to be any hard evidence <laughs> that there's more than one consciousness going on here as far as the physics goes. Now, we think there's a lot of evidence that there's more than one consciousness going on here because we have disagreements all the time. But from the physical standpoint, that's more difficult to uh, determine. And indeed, I think uh, there is a unity of consciousness that's behind all of this. Our idea of separateness is somewhat of an illusion, much like we experience in our dreams. In our dreams, we have all sorts of characters in our dreams, but when we wake up, we realize that all of that's coming out of our one head. There aren't a lot of people running around in your head in your dreams. It's just you. Uh, 
And it's really the same thing going on here. We just don't see it. Uh, all right, so uh, there's a oneness of consciousness uh, that we experience in the psychological sciences. Uh, there's a certain amount of evidence for that in the physical and psychological sciences. All right, so now let's look at the hymn of creation from the Vedas, and we'll see some of these similar elements. Then was not existence, nor existence. Now, notice how often they have to speak in terms of contradictions, sort of like Zen koans. You can't get at this through words, so you have to uh, give these rather paradoxical descriptions. Then was not existence, nor existence. There was no realm of air, no sky beyond it. What was there to cover and where? Was water there, unfathomable depths of water? There was neither death nor immortality, neither day or night. Now that's a poetic way to describe that you're beyond time. That time isn't in the picture yet. Now how can you talk about it when time's not in the picture? It's only 11.35 and we're already in trouble with words. We can't manage it. The one thing breathless breathed out by its own nature, apart from it was nothing whatsoever. Darkness there was, at first concealed in darkness. This all was undiscriminated chaos. Very familiar wording here. A lot of mythologies talk about this, this uh, unfathomable chaos. All that existed then was void and formless. Okay, so the Buddhists are in here too. You see, we've got voidness. By the great power of warmth was born that unit. Who can know whence and from, from where comes this creation? The gods are later than this world's manifestation. Who knows then whence it first came into being? So you see, it's impossible to talk about because there's nobody there to, <laughs> to witness it. His Dobson says, I'm not that old. <laughs> then this self-existent being, while never unfolding, yet unfolded this universe. So there again, there's this uh, idea that, it, that the universe comes forth from Brahman, and yet Brahman doesn't do anything about it. It's, it's, again, it's a mystery. Having shown his energy, he appears to scatter the shades of darkness. This being who only the spirit can perceive, subtle without distinct parts, eternal, including in himself all creatures, that would be the seed form idea, incomprehensible, appeared spontaneously. It just does, there isn't any time on it, it just appears, there it is. <laughs> Wishing to draw different creatures from his body, he first by thought, and that, as I said, that comes up frequently, produced the waters and deposited his seed in them. This, uh, this seed became a gold, golden egg as brilliant as the sun. And again, a lot of myths have this sun as one of the first things that comes out. In which he himself was born under the form of Brahma, the first father of all worlds. From this first cause, indistinct, eternal, including in itself being and not being, came the male known in the world by the name of Brahma. In this egg, the Blessed One remained a whole year. Now, there's no year, but anyway, how else to talk about it? Then by himself, by the efforts of thought only, he divided the egg into two. 
again, a very familiar feature. And of course, we've all cracked eggs and seen whites and yolks, so it's a nice analogy. From the two halves, he made heaven and earth, and between them, the air and the eight cardinal points in the eternal bodes of the water. Another very familiar theme uh, where you have the idea of the eight cardinal directions or the four directions and up and down. I mean, it just depends on the particular mythology, but this idea of space being differentiated and that you've got a place from which to measure it. It's not now in the void and unfathomable depths and so forth. We've now got some reference point to talk about. From himself, he drew the spirit, including in itself being and not being. We've still got that paradox. And from the spirit, he drew the feeling of self, which is conscious of personality and is its master. So this sense of ego has come. And also the great principle, the soul, and all objects which possess the three qualities and successively the five organs of the senses which perceive material things. All right, so there are a lot of key elements in there. And you have to remember that Shankara had to base his philosophy, all the people that developed a philosophy, had to base them on something. They couldn't just make them up. They had to base them on the Vedas. And then, so you see a lot of the, the places where he could have said, well, this is, I'm going to base my philosophy on this particular point. All right, now let's look at a couple other myths, and we'll point out where these same ideas come up. Uh, let's look at the, uh, uh, the Zuni priest, uh, his tale of creation. It says, before the beginning, so again, just the idea of before beginning, that means you're beyond time. Okay, you can't, you can't even talk about a beginning here because there isn't any time. So before the beginning of the new making, Awanawalona, the maker and container of all, the all-father God, so you've got oneness here, there's nothing else here, solely had its being. There was nothing else whatsoever throughout the great space of the ages save everywhere black darkness in it and everywhere void desolation. So that same idea, no differentiation. In the beginning of the new made, Awanawalona conceived within himself with thought, and it's the third time we've heard that, <laughs> Where mists of increase, steams potent of growth, were evolved and uplifted. Thus, by means of his innate knowledge, the all-container made himself in person the form of the sun. All right, so it, it was obvious to any early civilization that the sun was the source of their life and energy. At night it got cold, and if it stayed that way too long, you were in trouble. Uh, so the idea that the sun was what was giving life was, of course, very obvious. And so the sun had to be there in the beginning. And so the sun is then held to be our father and uh, who came to exist and appear. With this appearance of the sun came the brightening of the spaces with light and with the brightening of the spaces, the great mist clouds were thickening together and fell, whereupon was evolved water uh, water and water, and the world holding sea. And again, this isn't so far from our just scientific idea that you've got these clouds of hydrogen. There's no particular place there. There's no uh, defining mark. Uh, it, but somewhere there's just a little bit more than somewhere else, and it begins to fall together, and that hydrogen all falls together, and when enough of it falls together in one place, you get a star. And then you've got a possibility of having planets around it and people to think about it. Other than that, it's, nothing's going to happen. You're just in void nothingness out there. All right. With his substance of flesh outdrawn from the surface of his person, 
the Sun Father formed the seed stuff of twain worlds, impregnating therewith the great waters. And lo, in the heat of his light, these waters of the sea grew green and scums rose upon them, waxing wide and weighty until behold, they became the fourfold containing Mother Earth and the all covering Father Sky. So again, you have this uh, split into to, uh, Earth and Sky. So it's kind of that's one of your primal dualities: male, female, up, down, Sky, Earth, uh, waters, dry land, uh, night and day. Okay. So all all of these primal dualities uh, figure into these myths, which I think is just a poetic way of saying from the oneness you've got to split things into some sorts of pairs that have distinction in them. And then from there you get multiplicity. Thereupon the earth mother, oh excuse me, I skipped a page. Uh, from, the, uh, from the lying together of these two upon the great world waters, so vitalizing terrestrial life was conceived. Whence began all beings of earth, men and the creatures in the fourfold womb of the world. Thereupon the earth mother repulsed the sky god growing big and sinking deep into the embrace of the waters below, thus separating the Sky Father in the embrace of the waters above. As a woman forebodes evil for her firstborn, uh, even so did the Earth Mother forebode long withholding from birth her myriad progeny and meantime seeking counsel with the Sky Father. How, said they to one another, shall our children uh, when brought forth, know one place from another, even by the white light of the Sun Father. And then the story goes on about how they're going to uh, make things diverse and, and intelligible to the people. So you see a lot of those same elements in that particular uh, Zuni story. Now, uh, in Hawaii, it's a little more geographical. <laughs> and it's interesting. When you read these creation stories, they, they use things in the creation already to illustrate the points. It's very much like the Bible. You know, you have Adam and Eve, and then all of a sudden they're people that their kids go off and marry. <laughs> and it's, it's because this is a story that's supposed to illustrate a principle. It's, it's not really supposed to be history. And you get the same thing here. <clears throat> in the beginning was chaos. The Great Spirit looked upon the chaos and decided that there should be order. The Great Spirit divided itself among the sky and the earth, Wakea and Papa. Mana was called the life energy, and that flew, uh, flows through everything and was the underlying reality. Aina, the earth, was the sacred land, and it was born of fire. Now, how else are you going to describe it in Hawaii? <laughs> you got volcanoes that keep creating land all over the place. So it's a natural idea to incorporate that. Wakea and Papa came together to give birth to the ancient gods and goddesses. But when their children grow up, they fought. Now, everybody has sibling rivalry in their home. This is, a, this is something you can relate to. <clears throat> Especially Pele, fire, and Manaka, the sea. The sea was great and Pele was not as strong. Pele was forced out of Tahiti. Now you've already got Tahiti here. <laughs> Where did it come from? But it's interesting, they must have had some inkling of their past. These must have been Polynesian people that 
migrated from island to island, and that's a long hop from Tahiti to Hawaii, and yet that's got to be in their, their background somewhere. You couldn't get this kind of mythology. So she went to Kauai, and eventually Namaka found her and flooded the caldera and formed the swamp Alakali. Pele then moved to Oahu, and she resided in Diamond Head. Namaka again pursued her and put out her fire. This is exactly this. They're just describing geology as a fight between fire and water. That's all they're doing here. Uh, and it's, you know, that's the way it happened. The volcano moved from one place to another. You've got this, uh, the, the plate moving over this hole, and this, uh, so you keep getting these new islands popping up in this chain. Uh, <clears throat> okay, next, uh, next she moves to Maui, where she resided in Haleakala. Here there was a huge fight between uh, Namaka and Pele, and Namaka finally killed the physical body of Pele, but this freed her spirit to make her even more powerful. Pele's spirit traveled through five volcanoes on Hawaii, where she now resides in Kilauea. So uh, you get this play of dualities creating the earth. If you've got the, uh, a fight between two poles, then you can keep things going. If, if things are too lovey-dovey, everything just falls together. If, I mean, if you have just protons and electrons, and if you have protons and antiprotons, they just fall apart and nothing interesting happens. Protons have to be somehow different from electrons in order to make things go. And so then they, they want to be together, but they also fight being together, and you get something going. And it's, so this is a way to describe it in terms that people in Hawaii can understand. You've got a fight between water and fire, and it keeps moving around, and you get all these different islands. If they weren't in conflict, nothing interesting would happen. Okay, now the, the Bambara people of Africa uh, also have some interesting things that relate to our creation mythologies. It says, in the beginning was foo, or emptiness, brought forth by knowing. So again, you've got consciousness in from the word go here. So, you see, that's not a unique idea. Uh, it's we find it in a lot of mythologies that thought has something to do with this. <laughs> that how else to describe all-pervading consciousness but that there's this creator God that has a thought and this thought then creates the universe. This knowing full of its emptiness and emptiness full of itself was the prime creative force of the universe. It set forth in a mystical process a series of releasing and retracting energy. So you get this vibrational idea of back and forth and back and forth, releasing and retracting, releasing and retracting. This led to the creation of human consciousness. So our consciousness comes from the consciousness of God. The seed or principle of the universe. The releasing and retracting energy gave rise to the law of twinness, that's duality. From oneness comes duality, and then from duality you get multiplicity. And this law of twinness rules all creation. This is why every body and spirit has male and female aspects to it. So we're getting an idea here from just these several mythologies that there, there seem to all be in agreement that there's some sort of unfathomable oneness that starts this and that's some mysterious process that is usually described as a thought or a desire causes this creation to come into being and that somehow creates dualities. And that can be described as fire and water or the two parts of an egg or this, the earth and the sky or whatever. Lightness and darkness, all of these things are metaphors for that duality. 
And then the, there's some tension between these, and that's what keeps the creation going. All right, so you see, I think this model of creation that we have really does help us in our, our spiritual practice. For example, if you practice bhakti yoga, you're trying to reconnect to the original creator God through love. Love is, rather than conflict, conflict is what keeps this manifestation going. And love is what will get you out of it. And so you want to, through love, reconnect to the chosen ideal, and that connects you back to the creator God, and that connects you back to the uh, ineffable oneness. In karma yoga, we're reminded of the impermanence of this world and how we should be in the now. Now, that's a way of getting beyond time and space. How do you get beyond time and space? When you're working and you have to deal with the clock. <laughs> well, you try to be in the now rather than worrying about the past or worrying about the future and regretting the past. Uh, you have to be in the now. So that's a way of transcending time. Uh, also, it's trying to expand your consciousness to think of others and to not just think of yourself because the reality is that consciousness is one and not many. And so you want to connect with everyone else by thinking of them more than just yourself or thinking of oneness of what's good for everybody. Uh, jnana yoga, that emphasizes the unreality of this dynamic play that we see. And so if that's your practice, then you, you think of the original oneness. Araja yoga, it's the vibrational model where this whole universe is uh, a play of consciousness and thought waves of that original consciousness. And so we want to get back to the stillness and the oneness. And so we practice meditation. So these creation myths, I think, help us to get in touch with this cosmic process that's going on and try to work our way back to that uh, original state of oneness and peace. Because it's this multiplicity, while it's interesting, it also distracts us from our true nature and it makes us feel separate, it makes us feel lonely, it makes us feel afraid. Uh, and so to get beyond those thoughts, we have to try to reconnect somehow to the oneness that's behind all that. Now, because the universe is, in some sense, a misperception of that reality that's behind it, uh, I think it's this, the reality that's behind it that's driving the universe. And this is where we can talk just a minute or two on creation and intelligent design. Uh, I don't see a conflict there except the way they put it. <laughs> they, they want to put themselves in a polarity, you see, uh, and fight about it. See how that things keep going? Uh, to me, uh, consciousness is the ground of this entire universe, and it's operating through the laws which we have tried to ferret out and we've come up with laws of evolution. And there are certain seeming gaps and holes in that theory where it seems like things have evolved too fast, <laughs> uh, faster than you could uh, uh, predict. However, uh, if you think about it, uh, 
consciousness has a way of directing things. And so when crises come, I think that all-pervading consciousness of the universe drives evolution faster through its process in order to come to a point where it is again uh, able to survive. Uh, this isn't really a very odd concept. I had a, when I taught school, I had a student who uh, demonstrated to me that he could control how a coin was flipped. He, he could just sit there and concentrate on heads, and it would come out two-thirds heads uh, as opposed to half and half. So he was able to, with his mind, control, in some sense, what was happening in a physical process. And I think if you get a collective consciousness that things need to go in a certain way, there, there's a, a greater probability that they will go in that way. And so even though that seems like the probability that the mutations necessary in order for a species to evolve to survive a particular crisis seems astronomical, the fact that consciousness is behind it, I think, would give it a great possibility of choosing those particular mutations to happen faster than you would expect them when things are just going along nice and easy and not too much is, is challenging the, the species. But when the, the organisms are challenged, then you get a, 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 a speeding up of the evolutionary process because consciousness is behind it. Now again, the, the other uh, last point that we want to mention here is that since everything is coming from God, this whole creation, whether you think of it as actual or apparitional, it's here and we're experiencing it. So it's good to remember that its source is the divine. And so frequently that's, again, a part of the people's spiritual practice where they consciously try to see Brahman's uh, working through everything, or the Divine Mother working through everything. However, we also don't want to get carried away in this practice. That's why it's nice in Vedanta we have all these different practices so we don't get too overboard in any one of them. Uh, we, we must remember that uh, the what's behind this creation must be even greater than what is manifest here. Swami Vivekananda uh, reminded uh, uh, Betty Leggett of that when one of their trips through, I think it was Kashmir or something, and she was remarking uh, how beautiful everything was and how you know God's manifestation had this marvelous beauty to it. And he reminded her that uh, if you think the creation <laughs> is wonderful, think how wonderful the creator is. And so we mustn't lose sight of that in our spiritual practice as well.
This time he left the lead to follow to the end. Some will and others can know their creation. No man alive can gaze upon this splendor and pretend he doesn't understand. He has no intimation of this vital love he gave. Thank you. Okay, we need a February bulletin if anyone has one. <laughs> the William Pullen Memorial is this afternoon at 3, and Swami Brahmananda's puja is this Wednesday, and you're all invited. Swami uh, Brahmananda, you know, was the first president of the order, and the guru and spiritual teacher for many of the people that came to to head the Vedana centers in the 30s, including Swami Prabhavananda. And so uh, it's a special day for us. And uh, we invite you to come and enjoy that spiritual atmosphere. Uh, we also have two pujas coming up at the end of February, Shivaratri and Ramakrishna's puja. And so you'll have plenty of time to get those announcements. So I'll go ahead and close with a chant. Om Purnamada Purnamadam Purnamudachate 
filled with Brahman are the things we see, filled with Brahman are the things we see not. From out of Brahman floweth all that is, from Brahman all, yet is it still the same. Peace, peace, peace. 